Amen. The scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians 3. We've been going through a series of sermons on the letter to the church at Ephesus. They were at chapter 3. I'm going to read this entire chapter together. Ephesians 3. This is a reading of God's word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I had briefly written. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus for the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the rulers and authorities and the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose he was he has realized in Christ Jesus, O Lord, and whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. In your, in, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, which is gives us amazing insight into who you are. And Lord, we just need your spirit now uh, to open up our eyes, to speak through your servant, that we would know just a little bit more of how good, how great, how powerful you are. So speak through this time. Move your people through this time. Maybe uh, be united as we hear your word. As we give you praise to the preaching of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most influential preachers of all time was a man named Charles Spurgeon. He was a great London preacher, and he lived at the end of the 19th century. One of the things that a lot of people don't know about him is that he struggled with a severe form of depression his whole life. Uh, some of that can be traced to his early pastorate as a very young minister. Uh, he was preaching in the middle of London, a very large congregation, when a prankster yelled fire right in the middle of the service. Everyone headed, flooded from the exit. Seven people were killed by a stampede. A lot of other people were injured. And his wife at the time wrote that she thought his, her husband would never recover. He would never preach again. He did gradually get back to the pulpit. But throughout his ministry, he actually suffered from severe bouts of depression. It came at him like waves. 
And in his life, he struggled with that. He had some things that would make him feel better. For instance, he took walks uh, in a park, outside, in the city, that rejuvenated him. He loved to smoke a good cigar, which he said often refreshed him as well. But one of the last things that he did, which brought him ultimate peace, is this. This is what he writes. There is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musings of the Father, there is a quietness for every grief. In the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is healing for every sore. Do you want to lose your sorrow? Do you want to drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in God's deepest sea. Be lost in His immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know of nothing that can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout meditation on the subject of God. Spurgeon says that his greatest peace came from plunging himself in the immensity of God, just contemplating the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says when you do that, when you plunge yourself in God's greatest sea, you're going to find relief, you're going to find peace, you're going to find rest. So this morning what we want to do is that. We want to plunge ourselves into who God is. And we're going to see that when we lose ourselves in God, we can truly find our real selves. That when we meditate on who God is, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we can find our deepest rest and peace. So today as we look at Ephesians 3, I want to just look at three ideas, three things about God. Three meditations, if you will, based on Ephesians 3. We're going to look at three things. God's plan, God's power, and God's love. Those three things. We're going to break them down. God's plan, God's power, and God's love. We're going to start with God's plan. This has really been a big theme as we've been looking at the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a church in Ephesus. And at the very beginning of the letter, he unloads this big idea that God has a plan for the world. Uh, God has a plan for the church and for our lives. The big idea, he, he says in Ephesians 1, he says, Jesus has come to reconcile all things. He says there's been a fracture between heaven and earth. Humanity is fractured. And what God is doing in Jesus is he's making everything whole again. He's making everything right. He's making earth like heaven. He's bringing us back to the Father. That's a big idea, the big picture of what God is doing in the world. But more specifically, uh, Paul, especially in this chapter, talks about a more specific plan. He says, more specifically, God has a specific plan for the nations. He calls this a mystery. Chapter 3, he uses that uh, phrase twice, that God's plan, parts of God's plans are mysterious. Uh, there is a mystery in Ephesians 3, a mystery of Christ. What is that mystery? Why does he call it a mystery? Well, in verse 6, he says this, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. If you read the Old Testament, it seems like God is all about one nation, Israel. That's his nation. He calls it his prized possession. He calls Israel his son, his child, his beloved. You might think if you read the Old Testament, God's plan is just for one nation. But 
what God was doing and God's plan ultimately is that this one nation would actually be a blessing to all the nations. But God's plan and what causes the mystery that is finally being revealed is that God's plan is for all the nations. Uh, everybody loves this idea of a good mystery. You know, what is a mystery? A mystery is something that is, uh, they have all kinds of question marks. You're not quite sure. There are all kinds of clues, and slowly this mystery is revealed. And it's satisfying when we finally understand what the mystery was about. Uh, we can figure it out if we all piece it together. I love the movie uh, The Sixth Sense. It was released 20 years ago. You can believe that. And at the center of this movie is a story of a psychologist played by Bruce Willis. And he is treating a young boy who claims to see ghosts. He claims to see ghosts. And at the end of the movie, uh, this is, you know, I don't have to give a spoiler alert. This, there's no spoilers for movies that came out 20 years ago. <laughs> You didn't see it, that's on you. The movie, at the end of the movie, is revealed that Bruce Willis is dead. He's been dead the whole movie. He's been dead the whole movie. And the boy sees Bruce Willis because he sees ghosts. But you know, I love the movie because if you rewatch the movies, a lot of us have rewatched the movie, there are actually clues for that the whole movie that we should have seen. For instance, Bruce Willis wears the same clothes throughout the whole movie. He has layers of clothing, but it's the same clothes. He never changes. Uh, there is one moment in the movie where the Macaulay Culkin's character, the boy, says, I see ghosts, and the movie, and the camera zooms in on Bruce Willis's face. In fact, uh, the director said in a special uh, that they thought that was a dead giveaway. Literally a metaphor for a dead giveaway. The, the Bruce Willis was dead. But it's interesting, when you go back to the movie, you can piece it all together. The signs were all there. The clues were all there. The mystery, that the clues to solve the mystery were present. You know, when you look at the, the Old Testament, it's the same way. The mystery is that God's plan was for all the nations, but in Genesis, all the way in Genesis, we already see that that plan, in fact, in some ways, is stated. Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, Abraham, through you, all the nations will be blessed. God says that right in the beginning of Genesis. My plan, Abraham, is not for one nation, but you to be a blessing for the whole world. And what God is doing is that throughout Genesis to Revelation is he's restitching humanity. Humanity has been divided, it has been fractured, but God is restitching a fractured world that's so divided. And the way that he's doing that is through the church. It's the church that's supposed to bring together people from disparate places. That's why he says in verse 10 this idea. He says, so through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Uh, Paul says the church is the place that all of the nations should come. God is bringing people together through the church. When the church is a multiracial, multicultural place that brings enemies together, it gives glory to God. It's a testimony to the world. Jesus is king. Jesus is glorious. The wisdom, the phrase that Paul uses in verse 10 is this, the manifold wisdom of God. 
He says the wisdom of God is manifold, or literally many-sided. That word in the Greek was used of poetry, of embroidery, that would stitch together different colors. And it was used of poetry that brought together disparate elements. And what God is saying is that his wisdom has many-sided, is many-sided, it's beautiful. But the wisdom of God, in God's wisdom, he intentionally unveils slowly his plan. He slowly unveils his plan, which was once mysterious, but is now being unveiled. You know, sometimes God's plan uh, doesn't seem like it's working or it's good. You know, if you look at the Old Testament, sometimes it feels like God's plan is not going to be fulfilled. Uh, the nations are at odds with each other. There are bad rulers and bad kings. There's all kinds of wars and conflicts. There are all kinds of dead ends. But the idea is that even through time and difficulties, the plan of God will one day unfold. Look at what Paul writes about his own life. In verse 13, we read this. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Uh, Paul is talking about his own imprisonment. He actually writes Ephesians from a jail cell. And it would it would be easy for Paul to feel like, you know, why God doesn't have a plan for me. But Paul, even in prison, says, no, God has a, a tremendous plan even through my sufferings. He's going to use this even in the midst of my suffering and my hardships, even though I'm chained in jail. In John 13, Jesus talks about this idea that sometimes God's plan is, it takes us time to understand. John 13, Jesus is talking to Peter. Peter is one of the disciples who is constantly clueless. He's known for his cluelessness. And in John 13, he's struggling with Jesus because he doesn't understand why Jesus would wash his feet. And Peter says, Jesus, that's beneath you. You're the king. How could you do this? What does Jesus say to Peter? In John 13, 7, Jesus says, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, even if I tell you the whole plan now, you won't get it. You're only going to get my plan later on. Come back to it. You know, that's how it's often with us. Is that sometimes God's plan seems mysterious. We don't understand it. You might be at the moment in your life where God's plan seems, seems dark. God, why am I going through this hardship in my life? Why am I encountering this sickness? Why is this person in my life? Where, where is everything headed? I'm not quite sure. And what God calls us to this morning is to trust that His plan will unfold in His wise time. God's plan is sure. And it's unfolding in our life. You know, a couple years ago, I taught a spirituality class uh, during the summer. And in that class, I asked people to map out their whole life, like on a timeline, from the time they were born to now. I said, mark down every significant experience in your life that was traumatic, that was an accomplishment, that was joyful. I said, put a yellow post-it pad, post-it note on a timeline on a positive moment, a joyful moment. Put a red Post-it notepad uh, on a dramatic moment. And just kind of think through your life and think about themes. 
Right? Is there a theme that is emerging through your pain, through your joys? What is God teaching you? And almost always, people come away from that exercise realizing, you know, God is, He has a plan for my life. He's, he's working in certain areas of my life. And often we have to just pay attention to the story. You know, God is writing a story in our lives. We just have to pay attention to it. Sometimes we have to wait on it. It's still yet unfolding. We're not quite sure where it is or where it's going. But what God says to us this morning is that he has a plan for the world, for the church, and for our lives. And that plan is unfolding in his wise, in his sovereign time. We need to trust that. The first point is God's plan. God has a plan. The second point is this, that we also need to know not only God's plan, His wisdom, but secondly, His power in our lives. After talking about the plan of God, what Paul does is he prays for the Ephesian Christians. We've been saying that throughout this letter, prayer is a major theme. It's a major theme. And what is Paul praying for? He prayed in chapter 1. Now he doubles down on prayer in chapter 3. This is what he prays for. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul says he bows his knees before the Father. Uh, bow your knees was a posture of submission, of submitting everything to the king. And he prays specifically that they would not just know the power of God. In fact, in chapter 1, he prays that the Ephesian Christians would know the power of God. But in chapter 3, he's going deeper. He says, not only am I praying that you would know intellectually the power of God, he's praying in chapter 3, I pray that you would experience the power of God through the Spirit in your inner person. Those are the two key uh, ideas. Through the Spirit. Uh, we experience the power of God through the Spirit. The Spirit, uh, we, we said at the very beginning of this series, takes the work of Jesus and makes it ours. The Spirit takes Jesus' power and applies it to us. The Spirit takes what is God and makes it ours. What does the Spirit do? He takes the power of God and He breaks it into our life. Where? In the inner person. You know, the Bible says that there are two aspects of our lives. There's the outer being, we have physical bodies, but we have an inner person. Inner being. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says that though our outer man is breaking down, we get all kinds of broken bones and aches and pains and we age and we wrinkle. He says even though our outer man is being broken down, our inner person is being renewed day to day. There's an outer and an inner. And what Paul is praying for is not that our outer man would be strengthened, but our inner person, our spirit, our soul would be strengthened. You know, you could be physically strong, you go to CrossFit, you can work out, but if your inner man is weak, you're going to be hopeless, you're going to be depressed, you're going to be anxious, you're going to be aimless. You're not going to have a purpose in life. On the contrast, you can be physically breaking down, but if your inner person is strong, you can be full of joy. You have hope in your life. You can have a peace that transcends understanding. Look at the Apostle Paul. He's in prison, chained to an armed guard, never seen the sunlight, and he's filled with gratitude and joy. 
Why is that? Because inner person is being strengthened from day to day. So the question is this, how do I strengthen my inner person? How's my inner person strengthened? And the answer is, we come back to this almost every week, prayer. What is Paul doing? He's praying that the Spirit would strengthen the inner man of the Ephesian Christians. You know, I've been in ministry uh, for more than 20 years. And there have been times in my life where I, I feel very broken. I feel like I can, can't, can't get out of bed. I feel very discouraged. I feel very distraught. And it's in those times I feel like nobody's praying for me. Have you ever felt like that? I felt so desperate in my life and I feel like nobody's supporting me. No one's praying for me. On the flip side, I've had experiences in my life where I feel like so many people are praying for me. I feel like my wife, my family, my church, my friends are praying for me. And I can physically feel that support. I can spiritually feel the strength of people with me that I cannot be defeated, I cannot lose. One of the encouragement Paul tells you this morning is that you need a prayer support system. You need people praying for you. That's why Paul's praying for these Ephesian Christians. He's telling them to pray. That their inner person would be strengthened. One of the strongest things, courageous things you can ever do is to ask people to pray for you. Do you do, you do that regularly? Have the humility and the courage to ask people to pray for you. That's an important thing. Uh, most of you are in community groups. Make a pact with the people in your community group. Please, by name, pray for me every day. I need that. I need people around me praying for me, strengthening me, supporting me. It's a powerful thing for you to have a community lifting you up in prayer. And here's a promise when you pray. Paul promises you this in Ephesians 3.20. It says, Now to him was able to do far more abundantly than we all ask or think according to the power I work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Paul says that when you ask God for things, when you go to God in prayer, God can do far more than you can ever ask or imagine. <coughs> God has this infinite power that is available to you. And we need to only ask Him for those things. Uh, you know, last week, uh, my wife was traveling, and I had both my daughters. My son was uh, at his friend's house, and I had both my daughters, my oldest and my youngest. And I was taking my oldest to Target. That's a good way to kill time when you have kids. <laughs> I was taking them to Target. My oldest had a $25 gift card she got from a birth of as a birthday present from one of her friends, we're going to spend that to my oldest daughter. But my youngest daughter, she, as we walked into Target, she said, Dad, can I, can you buy me just a little something as well? Just a little thing. She emphasized that word, though. Just a little something. Can you buy me that too? That's what she, she told me. And, you know, she knew, she knew I had limitations. She didn't ask me, Dad, can you buy me the store? She didn't ask me, Dad, can you buy me five things, including a bicycle? She didn't try to bargain with me. She tried to ask for the smallest, most manageable thing that she thought I would agree to. You know, my, because uh, you know I have limitations. Imagine if 
Bill Gates had a daughter. Do you think Bill Gates would, uh, uh, the daughter of Bill Gates would walk in Target and ask, Dad, can you buy me a $5 smallest thing? Probably not. You know, if your dad's a billionaire, you're going to ask for big things. You're going to ask for great things. Do you know your father owns everything? You know he's in control of all things. He's all-powerful. And when you can really understand that, God says to you this morning, ask me for anything. So many of us ask for just small things. And here's a here's a, a, a test to see if you really believe the power of God or you do not. Often people who really, in theory, believe the power of God, but in practice really don't believe the power of God, we often only ask God for small things, manageable things, that human beings can do, that we can do in our own strength. But do you regularly ask God for things that only He can do? Do you have what we call God-sized prayers? Do you regularly ask God for things only only He can do with God? I ask you because not only are you powerful, but you're good. And when you ask God for great things, do you doubt that He can do it? Do you have confidence in His power, in His wisdom? Often our key problem is that our God is too small. We have a small God. We have a God that we is bite-sized, that we can travel with. And what God is asking you to do this morning is to have a big view of who He is. Have a great view of His greatness, of His power. God can do far more than we can ever ask or imagine. Ask Him for anything. Ask Him for anything. Ask Him for things that only He can do. You know, the last one is this, and this point brings us all together. We need to understand God's plan, God's power, but the final thing we need to really understand is God's love. And only when we get to that final point can we see that it all comes together. The final thing that Apostle Paul prays for is that not only they would have the power of God in their lives, but what? It says in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And the Apostle Paul prays, he says, this is my earnest prayer for you, that you would understand the depth and the height and the length and the width of what? Of God's love. And he's praying that they, that love, they would be rooted and grounded in that love. That uh, metaphor is a metaphor that has to do with trees. Uh, you know, we, um, through the fire seasons, we've been learning about the Santa Ana winds. Santa Ana winds pick up, pick up speed as they pass through the mountains. They can, uh, as they descend from the mountains, they can, they can go at speeds that exceed 40 miles an hour. Uh, these are high-speed winds that blow throughout our city. You know, in my neighborhood, in Eagle Rock, we have these huge palm trees. Huge, tall palm trees. You think that those trees would be fallen by these winds. But I've never seen one down. And one of the reasons for that is that these trees have deep roots that go deep underground. Uh, these roots are so deep and so powerful that they break concrete in our neighborhood. 
And what Paul is praying for is he's saying that I want you to have the love of God. I want the love of God to be your roots in your life that go really deep into your life. So that when the storms and the trials and the traumas of life comes, you will not be moved because you know you are so loved by God. That God's love is the anchor of your life. But Paul's prayer is that we would know the breadth and length and height and depth. And he's saying that we need a multi-dimensional understanding of God's love. You know, some of us have a very flat understanding of God's love. It's very one-dimensional. But what Paul's praying about is like, no, we need a multi-dimensional understanding of God's love. We need the love of God to hit us and be reality in our life. That the love of God will be a reality that affects us and moves us. How do we get that? How do we, how do we get these multi-dimensional understanding of God's love? And we need to think, we need to meditate, we need to understand the height of God's love. You know, that's why Apostle Paul always talks about where he came from. In verse 8, this is what he says. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You know, Paul understood the love of God because he understood where he came from. That was very important. That's why in verse 8, he mentions he's the very least of all the saints. Why does he say that? Well, in the book of Acts, we learn the history of Paul. That before he was an apostle, he persecuted the church. He was a hater. He imprisoned Christians. He was responsible for some of their deaths. We see that he was present at Stephen's stoning. And Paul never forgot that. He never forgot where he came from. That's why he says, I'm the least of all saints. He says, if you did a power ranking of all Christians at all times, I'll get the very bottom. I barely made it in. And he's, he never forgot that. You notice why he says that. He doesn't say that to wallow in his sin. He says that to appreciate the depth of God's love. That God's love reached out to me. Never forgot that. And we have to understand who, who we are and the depth of our sin. Not so that we can wallow in our sin, but so that we can appreciate the greatness of God's love. You know, some, some of us wallow in our sin. And if you think about it, that's self-centered. Uh, self so many of us think self-centeredness is having a high opinion of ourselves, thinking, man, I'm great, it's all about me. That is self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is also saying, I'm such a horrible person, I'm terrible. I'm such a bad I'm such a terrible, horrible person. We beat ourselves up. Do you know that's also self-centered? Why? Because it's still all about you. It's still about beating yourself up. It's still self-focused. When you think about your sin, don't wallow in your sin. Use your sin to understand the depth of God's love. The height of God's love. The God's love comes down to me. So when you think about your sin, think about how amazing God's grace is. How deep God's love is. Paul used understanding his past to magnify the love of God. Can you imagine that? Paul says, I want you to understand the height, the width, the depth, the length of the love of God. One of the greatest theologians who ever lived, Augustine, said that that is a reference to the cross. At the cross, we see the height, the width, the depth, the length of God's love. You know, you have a lot of people in your life who will tell you they love you. 
but it's fake? It's not real? How do you know someone really loves you? And the answer is, uh, they show you and they sacrifice you. You know, God's love is not just on paper. He doesn't just say he loves you. But the truest expression of the love of God is the cross. Because at the cross, God acted. He sacrificed his one and only son. And he tasted hell to bring you to the heights of heaven. He was cut off from God so that you could be a child of God. And the cross is the final testament of the multi-dimensional love of God. That he would be a sacrifice to bring you in. At the cross, we experience the love of God, the multidimensional love of God. As we close, uh, we talk about essentially three things. The plan of God, the power of God, and the love of God. And I would suggest to you that that is the, the root of all of our sins is that we forget those things about God. The root of all of our sins is that we forget all those things about God. Whenever we're anxious, we're forgetting the plan of God. Whenever we feel defeated, we're forgetting the power of God. Whenever we feel alone, we're forgetting the love of God. And what God wants to, to speak to you this morning, uh, and He says to you this morning, I want you to rest in me. You're feeling worn out because you're trying to figure out a plan for your life. You're feeling worn out because you're trying to get all these people to love you. You're performing to so many people. This morning, God says to you this morning, rest in my plan. Trust in my power and receive my love. Would you do that this morning? And when you do that, you're going to experience peace. You're going to experience his rest. You're going to experience a joy as you experience that in Christ. Please join me in prayer. Father, this morning we come to you and so many of us feel very tired. And many of us are so very anxious. And we forget your plan. We forget your purpose in our lives. So this morning we come back to you. Father God, we pray that your promise in Ephesians 3 would become so much the reality of our life. And we pray that we would not just know your power, but experience it. Pray for transformed lives. Pray for not just knowledge, but knowledge. We pray that in our Monday to these Sundays, we experience change and transformation. We experience you moving in our life in powerful ways. Break into our life. Pray that you remove our anxiousness and give us your peace. Pray that you would trade our sorrows. Pray that we would get your joy. Pray, God, that you would, we would experience your peace that transcends all of us. More than anything else, God, I pray that we would experience your love. Help us to experience that we are so loved as your children. And you gave up Jesus for us. Pray that we receive that every day. Pray that that would be the root, the ground, or assurance. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.